I want to start by saying that it is safe to say that if God loves something, then we should love it too, right? Of course. If God loves something, we should love it too. Also, it's safe to say that if God hates something, we should hate that too, right? I mean, it's common sense. It's clear. The Bible does say, after all, we should walk as Jesus did. We should We should imitate God's character. In my sermon last Sunday, I I referred to to John chapter 3, verse 16. I'll do that again this morning. So I want to start with that verse and from there branch out. So Psalm 3, not Psalm, John 3, 16. John 3, 16, it says this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In this particular verse, I'll just recap a little bit, Jesus was talking to a Jewish Pharisee, a leader of the people, whose job it was to teach people. And Jesus was teaching him how much God loved the world, and that because of that love, their salvation is possible to all who believe. That message was not just for that Jewish Pharisee, Nicodemus, whom Jesus was talking to. It was also for us. I want us to zero in on the word world. He was talking about humanity, the people of this world in general. From our vantage point, when we read this verse, we understand that, and we believe, we know and believe that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. That we have done, God loved the world so much, he sent his son to die for the world so that people in the world could believe. Today we come to a verse in the Bible in our series of sermons on certainties in Christ. It's 1 John chapter 2. I won't read it yet. I'll read it in a few minutes, but I just want to make a few comments. It says there, we're not to love the world. We're not to love the world. Is that a contradiction to John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave. Now, in 1 John Two says, do not love the world. Is that a contradiction? I just want to point this out that the word world is not used the same in every passage in the Bible. And what that word world means has to do with the context of the passage, where it's, where it's written, and how it's used. Of course, when the word world is used, it could mean the world, as we live in the world, the mountains, the, the seas, the land, the beauty of the world. Genesis uses the word world that way very, very much. Another use of the word world is the systems of this world, the structures, the national governments, the secular governments, and the, the political systems, the economic systems. It can be used that way as well. Another way the word world is used in the Bible, it simply means unbelievers. People who reject God, people who are not believers, people who who are simply denying Christ. They're worldly people. Today we want to focus and look on the importance of loving what is right and not loving what is wrong. As I said, we are now in our third sermon in our series on certainties in Christ. And John was so emphatic. He was so clear. He was so forceful. He emphasized this in his letter to his readers that they would understand the certainty of who Jesus was, what he had done, and what it means to follow him, what that all entails. It's real. It happened. 
It's important for us to get this right, that we don't get off track from what we're taught. So let's read John, 1 John 2, verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For anyone who loves, for anyone, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Three times the word world is used in this short passage. John's talking about not necessarily people, but people too. It's an inclusive word here. Let's remember John's audience, the people who he is speaking to, they were believers. He's not talking to unbelievers when he wrote the letter, giving them some very clear instructions what not to love. When we use the word world here, this, in this passage, it means a whole range of things. The secular system of the world, the, co- the country in which we live, in which they lived, a system not based on godly principles. Maybe it's even socially stable. Maybe it's even politically strong or militarily strong, and maybe it's secure. But it's nevertheless a system outside the realm of God's kingdom. Don't love it, he says. Don't love it. Do not love the world. Do not lean on it, trust on it, or depend on it, or base your hopes on it. If we use the word, word worldly people, we would be referring to people who do not love God, who have not put their hope and trust in God, who have not repented of their sin. They're worldly people. Or even worldly churches. Can you imagine that? Worldly churches? Do they exist? Well, they do. Yes, they do. In the book of Revelation, there's a, there's a passage where the church of Laodicea was a worldly church. It had shifted its allegiance from Christ to things or to systems or to, to uh, structure. Christ was not the focus. We got it made. We're, we're established. We are, they were into themselves a lot. Churches like that exist today. I, I sometimes think it's a contradiction to call them a church, maybe a social club. They may do things, even some good things, maybe even raise money for the poor. But Christ is not the focus. During John's time, toward the end of his life when he wrote the book of Revelation, this was a big issue. And there were some churches who were worldly churches. So as he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't love them. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That goes for us. If we love the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in us. It's almost like in my mind and a heart when I read this, read this, I go, John, do you have to be so sharp? Can't you be a bit more gracious here? What does that do? You're making some hard statements. But let's be honest. Let's ask ourselves, are there things in our lives, values we hold, or things we do, Possessions we have that replace our first love. So we do not love God the most. We love something else more. Are there things in our lives that replace God? And it could be a whole host of things, but I'll pick on the most common one always used, and that's, let's say, money. And it's not, nece- it's not even the amount. It's, it's, not, it's not the money itself. For instance, two people can have the same amount of money, a massive sum of money. Let's say they have um, millions of dollars, two individuals. 
One uses it just for himself, for, for this world, um, just to make himself secure. And the only thing he's worried about is, how can I live easier, more comfortable, more convenient? He loves that money. The other person has the same amount of money, but his focus is, how can I use this to help my neighbor? How can I use this for good purposes for my community so that we all benefit from it? Completely different value systems. So it's what's in the heart where it starts. John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. And it can be an object. I want this. Now do what I have to do to get it. I don't need it, I just want it. And I'll get whatever I have to do. And so all of a sudden my devotion to Christ is now replaced with a thing. It's different from person to person. We don't all have the same temptations and the same struggles, but everyone is in some way affected by this. A good rule to go by, by the way, if we're struggling with something that starts to take us, take over and become number one in our lives, we can simply ask this question. Will this interfere with my devotion to Jesus? Will this distract me from my call in life that God has placed on my life? Will this dim my zeal and my testimony? If those questions are asked, and depending how we answer them, we can decide, you know what, actually, maybe it's better if I don't do this. The thing may not be sin, but the reason for it can be. Sometimes it's even good to ask a fellow believer if we should do a certain thing. And embrace ourselves, because they may tell us and point out something to us that we have not seen. You see, we all have blind spots. And they're blind spots because we don't know we have them. If we knew we had them, we wouldn't say, well, okay, I know I have a blind spot. No, then it's not a blind spot, then I'm aware of it. And so a fellow believer might say, you know what, I think it's, here's what it will do if you do that. And this thing, the world, as John names it here, is very wide-ranging. It reaches into every area of our lives, material goods, money, possessions, fame, education, knowledge, recognition, position, and status. What You name it, it can be it. Again, please don't misunderstand me. The stuff and the things, they are not the core issue. It's the heart. And the thing can be an issue, but it's where it comes out of the heart. Anything that becomes more important to us than God's call in our lives or that interferes with God's call in our lives, that is worldly to us. You know, folks, this can get very, very, very hard because sometimes it's family. And I know the story in Genesis, I believe it's Genesis, don't quote me on the passage, I want to say 22 or 23, I'm not sure where. I'm just thinking of this now, God tested Abraham. I want you to sacrifice your son for me. And he wanted to know, will you love me more or put me before your own son? Abraham did, by the way, he didn't have to kill him, but it was a very hard test. There's many stories like that. I mean, not as severe, but there's one familiar one in the Bible in Mark 10. We won't read that. I'll just share it. A young man, a good guy, law-abiding citizen, came to Jesus one day, and he wants to also go to heaven. He wants to be, he wants to be in the kingdom of God. And what must I do to follow, to, to get into the kingdom? And Jesus says, well, obey the commandments. He says, I've done all that. What do I still lack? And Jesus says, uh, you're a rich man. Sell what you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. You see, Jesus usually touches where it hurts, the stuff that we hold dear, because that is usually what wants to take place number one. The man walked away sad because he loved the things of this world. 
The money was not the sin, but what the money was doing to him, that was sin. Jesus said, get rid of it, and then you can come and follow me. He was loving the things of this world. He walked away sad. Many years ago, I read a story of a missionary from the States who went to a third world country to plant a church. The church got planted, and in this poor community, people are desperately poor, and, and one, young man, one man stopped coming to church one day, and so the, this, this missionary asked one of the parishioners, so why is so-and-so not in church? Oh, he's building a house. And so the missionary went over there and checked things out, and there was this man on a small plot of land the size of a garage, no bigger than the size of a garage, a normal garage. On that little tiny plot of land, he was building an even tinier house, just, just a tiny little house. And so he asked this man, so I notice you're not in church anymore, and um, he's concerned about that, and he's not fellowshipping with the saints anymore, and he's concerned about him. He says, the man kind of hung his head in sadness and said, well, he says, I think I just got greedy. And the missionary wrote, he said, it's relative. Whether it's one dollar or a million, whether it's a tiny insignificant item or a big thing, once it takes possession of us, we put our love in the wrong place. Whether something is a worldly thing to us depends how much room it occupies in our hearts. So we must ask ourselves, are we loving things more than God? Are we loving things that God does not want us to love? Maybe you start getting a little defensive by now and feel like, well, well, Let's see what he says in the, last, in the next part of the verse. He says, For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Do you know what would happen to the economy if people started living by this principle and this teaching? There'd be a collapse. And maybe in a good way, because people would stop buying things they don't need to keep money to give to causes they, they would feel they should support, things they should be doing. The desires of the heart, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, he says, this is taking over. And so that's why we shouldn't love the world. A counselor and a client were sitting together one day, and the client was sharing with the counselor all the stresses and struggles of life and the hardships and so on he was facing. And the counselor listened intently and carefully, and and um, this client shared his burdens, and he wasn't measuring up to his friends, his neighbors, his family. He, he wanted to have what they had. And the counselor just nicely said, temporal values. It hit the client hard because he knew the counselor was right. He had placed value in the wrong things. So he had to do some repenting. It's not that the things were sinful, but the reason for them were sinful. It's not wrong to buy a new truck build a new house, the reason for it may well be. Not wrong to go on a vacation, spend money on new clothes, go places, do things, it's fine, it's good. In fact, Paul writes about that, we should, God has given us these things to enjoy. But the reasons for it can be. When we put value on those things outside of God's presence in our lives, then they take over. Let's read verse 17, what he says. Let's see what John 2.17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's a long time. Think of it. 
that stuff in this world, even this building as nice as it is, and it should be nice, shouldn't be shabby and run down and careless about it, but it won't be here forever. Our physical bodies, so much time as we spend on them and try to look good and maybe stay in shape, it's not wrong, but why? What for? The reason better be right. The world will pass away. All of its stuff will be gone. I love looking at structures and inventions and technology and, and, and machines that people build. It's great. But it's just for now. It'll all disappear. God is forever. Our souls are forever. You see, one day, all of this, the bank accounts and the, the college degrees and, and the buildings we build and the, the retirement plans we try to put together and, and all, whatever you may want to call it, all just vanishes. Won't matter anymore. John says it all disappears, it passes away. It's temporary. It's not eternal. Not even our bodies. We'll have new bodies in heaven, by the way. All the government structures and systems and corporations, whatever it may be, it's all going to go away. And we fight so hard for it, don't we? It's almost like we're trying to make a home on a sinking ship. How foolish is that? Paul, and again, as I said before, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 17, God's given us good things to enjoy. But we must keep God in our focus and we must do it for the right reason, whatever it is we have. There's a sense of urgency that John has in this passage. He writes with a, a sense of urgency here. And then he, he switches over a little bit into a different topic as if that, that, that's not good. Don't do that. Don't love the world. It's things. But now focus on this. And what gets really important, he says in verse 18, says, children, it's the last hour. As you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. This is what's important to him. This is what he puts the emphasis on. Be careful where you stand. Be careful how you walk. Be careful what you embrace. Antichrist is coming, he said. And again, I'll just pause very briefly for, on this word antichrist. Anti means against. Christ means, of course, Christ. So people who are against Christ, they're coming. And these were false teachers who were changing the gospel message, who were making Christ into something he wasn't, and trying to draw attention to themselves away from Christ. And we, this could be a whole series of sermons about antichrist in and of itself. But I won't spend much time on that. But there are still people today who want us to follow them more than Christ. Be careful. Watch out. Anything that puts Christ number two and themselves number one, stay away from it. And John is very emphatic about this. He says in verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is a very important topic to him. And you find he spends a lot more time writing about this than he does about stuff. If people who claim to be followers of Jesus, time will tell. Their fruit will show. It may take some time, but trees always reveal what trees they are once the fruit comes. John says they went out because they were not part of the body of Christ. Not everyone who looks like a believer is a believer. They have an appearance of a believer sometimes. They may even do some things believers do, they may even sound like a believer, but in time, it will come out. Then John shifts again his focus and attention to his readers and says to them, says, but you, verse 20, but you, you've been anointed by the Holy One. You all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. 
Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Father, who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. He's confident of his audience where they're at, where they're at in their walk with God. They've been anointed, they've been taught, they have knowledge, they know the truth, and they walk in it. Jesus in his teachings in the Gospels was very clear. He says, you can only serve one master, not two masters. We will serve the one and hate the other. So we must ask ourselves, is the world our master or is God our master? Is Jesus Lord or are things Lord? Are we following a person, an idea, adhering to some teaching that's not even godly? It's maybe antichrist teaching. God's children are not perfect and not flawless. We had that in the previous sermon. But this is where God's grace shines through, through Christ and comes and helps us. It goes back to the truth that we've said, stated before. We need to live lives of repentance when we mess up. Jesus once told a parable of two men, one a Pharisee and one a sinner. Both went into the temple. The Pharisee was very proud, very confident of his accomplishments, his spiritual status, his giving, his generosity, and his status in the community, and so on. And he went and stood kind of in a place where everybody could see him, and he prayed, thanking God how good he was and what he was all doing and so on. Then there was this sinner who knew he wasn't a good guy, and he walked into the temple and just beat on his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said the second man went home justified instead of the first one. The reason was because the second man prayed in repentance and humility, Jesus was Lord in his life. The first man, the Pharisee, he was basically coming before God, rattling off his good deeds chart, making God indebted to him. The sinner wanted mercy and grace. The Pharisee was a man who loved adulation and praise and honor from people. The sinner, he wanted God to be merciful. If we love Jesus... We will worship him as Lord. And it won't matter what people say or think. won't matter what they have. We will only be focused on God. John goes on in verse 24. He says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So there was this false teaching again. And he's mentioning the word abide. Notice this. Let's continue reading verse 27. He says, but the anointing you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he taught you, abide in him. Little children, and now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence in him and not, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practiced righteousness has been born of him. You notice how many times in these, from verse 24 down to the end of verse 29, the word abide is written. Stay. God's teaching will stay in you. You will stay in God. This, this, this unity is here. Keep on keeping on. Number of times he mentions stay. God's teaching stays in you. You stay in God. You stay together. There's so much pressure to compromise, to change, to accommodate, to acclimatize to the culture. Don't go there. It comes down to two things. Loving God or loving the world. Loving Jesus or the secular culture around us. It comes down to a question of loyalty and relationship. 
John was an old man by the time he wrote this. He had seen so much in his lifetime. And God's Spirit moved him to write this letter. It wasn't imaginary, it was real. He, need, he wrote them to tell them they needed to keep focusing on loving God and loving one another. He wrote them to not get caught up and drawn away into loving the world and the things of the world. The danger they were facing was they could become distracted, lose focus in their walk with God. Abide in Christ, John writes. Today we're in a massive tidal wave of global change at every conceivable level. I'm not a prophet claiming to know what the future holds, but it doesn't look bright. What we do know is for the followers of Jesus, nothing changes. The command is still the same. We're reminded to not love the world or the things of the world. We're reminded to abide in Christ and his teaching will abide in us. So if you're a believer in Christ, I want to encourage you, carry yourself well. Do not give in to the fears and the pressures of this culture. Stay focused on Jesus. If John was alive today and he would write a letter specifically to us as a church, I believe he would write one thing similar to this, but he would also talk about repentance. He would call us to repent from our fears and distractions of what's going on around us. I'm guilty as the rest. I'm not excluding myself here. I'm convinced we have from time to time focused way too much on what's going on around us, what's going to happen, what may or may not happen, how should we respond, and so on. We should be far more focused on, okay, what would Jesus want us to do? What can we do to honor Jesus? We're God's children. We're not children of the government or the culture or the world. We're God's children. He's our Father. He loves us. And even when he allows us to suffer, that does not mean he doesn't love us. It means he allows us to be tested and to be matured through the pain and suffering. You see, nothing here will last. Our bodies will die. Our money will be gone. And the time will soon be over. And then eternity. It's all coming. And the risk we face now is that we're going to start paying attention to the things we shouldn't pay attention to. We have no idea what's going to happen yet to this world. We know it's going to go downhill, but how or where? That's for God to, to reveal to us when it happens. But my prayer is that God will protect us from loving the world and its things. May we have his love in our hearts, guiding and leading us ever closer and walking with him in relationship. May God give us his peace and joy in that direction. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the Bible. We thank you for your word. You say your word is going to last forever. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It will last in eternity. Lord, there's so many compromises happening in so many levels, and help us, Lord, not to be guilty of that. And where we are, we pray for, for the ability and the grace to repent, and then may you forgive us, may you help us move forward in grace and joy. Whatever may happen to the world, Lord, we don't know. Only you know that, and we can rest assured we are your children. You'll take care of us. You'll see us through. May we follow you in joy and peace. In Jesus' name.